This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. so people can drink along. I am drinking red wine called 19 Crimes and it's the Uprising and it's aged in rum barrels. I'm super excited about that. Um, Mark, what are you drinking today? I am drinking some uh, Coffee Shop of Horrors. Uh, today's is Le Petite Mort Coffee, uh, the French vanilla, and I highly recommend it. It's so good. Oh my gosh, love these guys. So that will be, uh, I am... Uh, alcohol free today but uh but the coffee's doing its thing so okay good harry what are you drinking i have here a new belgium triple eight and a half percent fermented forever it is so nice oh that sounds delicious that sounds delicious okay so for everybody who's living under a rock and doesn't know who you are can you tell our listening audience what you write I am an escaped Byzantine historian because I got fascinated by El Spray Decamps Less Darkness Fall when I was about 15 years old, and I ended up with a doctorate in Byzantine history. You want fries with that? And I've always, this, this would be funny if only it were funny, you know what I mean? And I write, you know, I've, I've loved science fiction since I was a little kid. And so I write science fiction and fantasy. And because I trained as a historian, a lot of what I write is alternate history. A lot of the fantasy is historically based. I also write straight historical fiction when I can get away with it. And I've managed to make a living doing this, which still amazes me for almost 30 years now. No, and, and that is amazing. So you went to school for history. Um, when did you actually start writing, like, um, fiction? Uh, I first tried to write a novel when I was, let me think, either 13 or 14. I first finished one. Yeah, I first finished one when I was 16. Uh, the only time I haven't really tried to write fiction is when I was heavily doing graduate school, which probably cost me about five years on my career because I was just getting close to the point where I could start selling stuff. Made my first sale in 1977 when I was 28. Uh, started selling regularly in the 80s, quit my day job in 91. That is awesome. What was your first sale? My first sale was a novelette that I wrote along with the lady I was then married to, who I'm not married to now. I have a, I'm hanging out with different people, and so does she. It was called uh, Death in Wasuna. It, it was a murder mystery set in the second century AD when time travelers come back to steal a Greek play that is no longer extant in the modern world. Oh, wow. 
that sounds well what was the first thing you wrote when you you said 16 right what what was that that was a very bad alternate history i will say no more <laughs> because what what because when you're 16 what you write is generally very bad because you don't quite know what you're doing yet that's how you find out by doing it wrong until you start doing it right no totally did you so where did you sell the, have you been traditionally published this entire time most of it yeah and how do you feel that is versus now because one of the things like we've, i've talked to like bill fawcett and sm sterling and one of the things that they said because you know they they were published in the 80s and stuff they were talking about the fact that you know back then you'd get like three books like they'd give you a three-part series to see how you're doing and now they give you one book and it's got to be spectacular you might not get the second book that seems to be true did you find it do you think it's i guess my question is when it comes to people who are doing self-publishing and stuff, do you think the publishing world has created an issue for authors to have a path to success when it comes to that sort of thing? Well, I, you know, there, there, there are publishers who basically won't look at, or I won't say won't look at, but won't buy anything that they don't think will be a blockbuster these days. I think that's a silly way to do business, but I mean, what do I know? I'm just a writer. If I were smart, I wouldn't have done this. I don't know about that. I think the creative thing. How many books have you got published now? Do you know the total? Uh, it's in triple digits. It's in very low triple digits. I don't know exactly. Oh, that's still pretty awesome. What is your favorite story that you've written? I never answer that question. I'm sorry. I just don't. It's like asking me what my favorite kid is. Well, it depends on which kid's in front of you at that time, I find. <laughs> You are, of course, obviously. I have two, and it's funny, I'll say that, and then they'll go, don't tell the other one. And I'm like, okay, cool. No, nope, the other one's in front of me, now they're my favorite. <laughs> you know, that's the, the old, the, the very old now Stephen Stills song. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, did you have a question there? Um, no, I remember reading uh, some time ago the Misplaced Legion series, um, mm -hmm. and um, and that was what uh, I think you know originally sparked my interest. In the, I was working at a the, the date myself here. That was, I was working at a B Dalton Books at the time, uh, uh, which no longer was. I re I, re I remember them. Yes, yes, you were uh, you had your whole you had a whole shelf there at one point, if I recall. <laughs> Um, but I remember the one oh, dirty to be some more. I like it. <laughs> well, the one that stood out to me at the time, I remember, uh, I guess it was early nineties would have been, and the one I always recommend to people when they're looking for some alternative fiction, uh, alternative history fiction. And I always recommend guns of the South. Well, um, thank you very much. That, that was the book that let me quit my day job. That's well, what I was going to say. That seemed to be like your turning point. Cause at that point yep. after that, it was. You know, hit after hit, I think. So, um, Mark yeah, has two nice. copies of that book. <laughs> he can lend people a copy. He always yeah. keeps two copies of this book. So he can always, when he's talking about it, give somebody a copy. Yeah. Well, I have my first print and then I loan out my 12th print. 
you know, of it. So, you know, for people, so, you know, so that way they get into you and buy more of your books. So, you know, um, <laughs> you got to have those gateway drugs, you know, exactly. But uh, now my, now my thought on that was you know, when you were doing that one, I know you followed it up with the series and then basically just pretended like a different way of the, you know, the South. It's yeah. That, the, 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 the series is not really connected to guns of the South, although it draws on some of the same research. You know, it's funny, when I started writing the series, when I started writing the Timeline 191 books, my oldest daughter would have been, God, I don't know, 11 or 12, right? And she said, what are you working on now, Daddy? And I said, well, I'm writing a series where the South won the Civil War, and she kind of looked at me and she said, again? Because uh, my, my daughters, you know, I have no idea where they learn snark. I have no idea at all. <laughs> me, me neither in the last few yeah. minutes. I have no idea. Um, I don't know where they get it. Yeah, it's nothing like when your kids are sarcastic back to you and you have to go, well, that sounds like something I would have said. Touche. Well <laughs> Acknowledged. Um, when did your kids start reading your books or do they read your books? I guess I should ask that. Uh, they, they, they read some of them. Uh, you know, I have three girls and they're, you know, they're living their own lives now because they're all in their 30s. Uh, you know, uh, but yeah, they, they, they started reading them fairly soon. I, you know, I had one of them who got a uh, doctorate in... Uh, late Roman history, which is right between what I studied and what my wife studied. And she's not, you know, she, she does not have an academic job now. She's, you know, working in the real world. That's interesting. It's interesting, the passion degrees. I do, for my day job, I've done human resources for 25 years. And it's always interesting when somebody comes in and I see the degrees versus the jobs that they're applying for. So yeah, that well, makes me a little sad that we're able to find these, something these, in the genre. These, you know, I mean, I mean, I know this song. You know, <laughs> I did that. Why did you go to school for that? What were you thinking would be the end result of you going to school for that? I was thinking I was going to be a professor, but I couldn't get a job. Interesting. I taught. I taught for two years at UCLA while the fellow under whom I studied had a guest gig at the University of Athens, and it was certainly time well spent because not only did it support me, but I also met the lady that I'd been married to for the last going on 41 years. So, I mean, it was, you know. <laughs> that was definitely the bonus to come out of that situation. You betcha. You betcha. When... So, as you start writing the books, when did you, did you want to, when you started publishing, go, I want to eventually do this full time? I, you know, I was hoping I could do it full time. I didn't think it was going to happen until I sold Guns of the South. When I did that, you know, counting the money I got from that, I had enough money saved up that, 
my family and I could probably make it for a couple of years, even if I, you know, didn't sell anything else. And so I thought, if I'm not going to do it now, when am I going to do it? So I did it. What were you and I, at that time when you decided to make the jump? If you don't mind. I had, I had a, what was called a tech writing job with the Los Angeles County Office of Education. I was basically a hired keyboard. I wrote newsletters. I wrote proposals. I wrote uh, anything they needed me to write. I translated educationese into English. You know, I edited. I was even an emergency uh, layout and paste-up guy for a while back when, you know, back when you knew what the smell of rubber cement was like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, did you, did you ever find it hard? So I've talked to some people who ended up having, like we talked to Jonathan Mayberry and he was writing academic books before he started writing his fiction books. Did you ever find it um, where it was draining because you wrote all day to come home and write the fiction? Uh, it was. The other thing was that one kind of writing looks very much like another kind of writing, so they didn't always know what I was doing at my desk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, words of wisdom right there. Words of wisdom. It's probably easier these days. But... You know, uh, so that that was one thing. You know, the, the other thing is, it's funny. I was hoping, even while I had that job for a while, I was hoping I was going to be an academic. Now, when I first, when I sold my first novel in like 1978, they said, your name is Harry Turtledove? And I said, yeah. And they said, nobody's going to believe this. We're going to publish you under the pen name Eric Iverson, right? Oh, wow. So, so I didn't like this very much, but after a while, I, you know, in fact, I, I, I liked it so little that I eventually changed it to Eric G. Iverson. The G, though, I didn't widely advertise. It stood for goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> uh and I, you know, I published a little bit of academic nonfiction myself. I published several articles. I published a translation of a ninth century Byzantine chronicle, and those went out as by Harry Turtledove. And I thought this might be useful, you know, to have a name for my fiction and a name for my nonfiction. So I thought, okay, I'll roll with it. Then I sold the Videsos books that Mark mentioned to Lester Del Rey. And Lester said, well, I'm going to publish you as Harry Turtledove, not as Eric G. Iverson, because people will remember Harry Turtledove. And I said, but I'm starting to get known as Iverson. And he said, well, if you want to stay Iverson, I won't publish them. Wow. And Whoa. since he had the, and since he had the whip hand and I didn't, they came out as by Harry Turtledove. So I may be the only writer in captivity who has had his pen name and his own name imposed on him by force. 
Wow, were you so the books that were published under Goddamn? Um, were were you ever <laughs> able to move them under Harry Turtledove? Uh, they, they, I only published one novel as by Iverson, and when when I resold it, yes, it came out under my own name, my real name. Wow, that's that is kind of an interesting journey when it comes to the name stuff because you I often wonder writing writing is writing is weird it just is oh gosh no I agree 100% but that's part of what makes it so much fun is just the worlds and it's interesting because you see all these names and sometimes I see names and I go did that person do that themselves or did you know somebody say you have no choice but to and that happens even today Mm -hmm. I see that happen. And what's always interesting to me is when, you know, Harry Turtledove, brilliant, brilliant name regardless. And people, I could see why they think you made that up. But um, I've seen people use their, their real names and they're not easily searchable. And I think in today's day and age where you're not walking into a bookstore like B. Dalton or Walden Books, I'll bring up some of the oldies, but the goodies, right? <laughs> you're not walking in and asking for somebody where the person knows the name, how it's spelled correctly and can find it. I, you know, there was a girl that I interviewed whose name, like it was supposed to be like air or something, but it was spelled with like 12 letters. And I was like, how would anyone <laughs> find you? Like I brought them up, I'm like, did you ever think about changing your, 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 your author name because Nobody can pronounce what you just, like, I didn't pronounce it correctly. When she came on the show, it's like, how do you say your name when she said it? And I'm like, but that's not what you wrote down. And she goes, no, that's how that's pronounced. And I was like, oh, okay. And I would then, and, and then you have people like poor Al going back, you know, Bram Stoker winner and, and poor Al, you know, Native American and people don't believe it's his real name. Yeah, and it's yep. the same problem. Oh, yes. I, 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 have, been, I have been asked by people who have never seen this very Jewish looking face if I am Native American <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> well, let's, oh, let's talk a minute about fans. So when was the first time you got to interact with your fans? Oh, uh, Oh, I, all right. I, yeah, no, I, I, I pretty much know the first, the first time I was at a world con when I actually had some stuff out was the Atlanta world con in 19. No, it wasn't Atlanta. It was new Orleans in 1988. And I had an autograph session set up, and I was so proud. Oh, good! I have the Videsos books out. There will be people. I will sign books. I will, you know, say hello to my fans and all that good stuff. And they had me signing opposite Sprague and Catherine De Camp. There is an there is an exercise in humility. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That that yeah. does not sound like a good first experience. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, I mean, it was fun. You know, I I had you know I had met Spray a couple of years before, and I got you know, and I told him, you know, what he had done to my life because he changed my entire life. 
and he was sort of pleased and appalled in equal measure as, uh-huh. as what is. <laughs> so how did he change your entire life? Because if I had not found Less Darkness Fall in a secondhand bookstore when I was, what, 14 years old, something like that, possibly 15, I would not have been a Byzantine historian. I wouldn't have written most of what I've written. I would have written something. I already had the bug, but I wouldn't have written this. I wouldn't uh, have the degree I have. I wouldn't have met my wife because I met her when I was teaching at UCLA. I wouldn't have the kids I have. I wouldn't be sitting in the bedroom where I'm sitting talking to you guys right now. I'd be sitting in some other house talking to you guys right now. (laughs) Other than that, it didn't change my life a bit. It's interesting, the butterfly effect, and it it says... Yeah, I mean, this is is alternate history on the micro-historical level. I think that is amazing because, you know, we, we, I don't think say it enough when we talk about books can change your life, right? Mm -hmm. Your life can change everything about your life. Books can, books can, you know, writers are dangerous people because they can mess you up without ever meeting you. I changed history from being a, a Rome, you know, it's funny you talk about Byzantine history. I was into Roman history until I read this book called Guns of the South, and then suddenly I became a Civil War buff. And uh, <laughs> from that, and now my books are all about folklore from like the 1800s, late 1800s mostly. So, yeah, people, you know, um, one of my daughters ended up studying the Japanese language and history, and uh spent, you know, a year in Japan as a student because she got fascinated by Japanese history by the Ronin Ben K in Peter Beagle's book, The Folk of the Air. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, you know, writers, writers will mess you up. I agree a thousand percent. Oh, my God. I think it's amazing that you said that. And this is the voice of drinking with authors you are at our commercial break and our commercial is hey do you want to be a guest on our show or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of that would have to stump us but you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. And we're back. Okay, so let's, we're back to your fans. Your first autograph signing was not as um, wonderful as it could have been. What is that? <laughs> I'm going to use- You know, you know, the, the the line that they say when you're up for an award is, it's an honor to be nominated. It was an honor to be asked to sign, basically. You know, it's, it's funny. I actually, I got an award recently in Human Resources, which was really great. And it was this award. Congratulations. It was big. What's funny is they asked me, they were like, well, were you expecting it? I don't know why they interviewed me. And I said, 
No, because our company's got about a thousand people, but I was up against like KFC and Twitter and Amazon. Like I was up against all these. And I said to me, it was kind of like Tom Hanks being nominated in the same category as me and showing up. Like I don't even write an acceptance speech at that point. Like I'm just there to watch him go take the award. So anyway, I think it's, it's very, that can be very interesting. What about the first time your fans rec- have you had fans recognize you and stop you on the street? Mm, not on the street, I don't think. I've had people a couple of times going through an airport where I have to show, you know, my ID or a passport or something. I've had the person checking it go, Oh, you're that guy. <laughs> You know, so I, I mean, I've, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, people kind of know, you know, people who read science fiction kind of know the name, but there isn't always a face to go with it, which considering the face here isn't probably just as well. You look brilliant in your headshots. I'm sure you dress up perfectly fine. No, just <laughs> <laughs> so, what about, have you had any fans dress? I, 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 it's interesting because there's a lot of, you know, authors listen to this podcast, but a lot of fans listen to this podcast. And, you know, I think sometimes fans, um, as authors, the fans get so super excited, right? And I found that authors generally are one of the most humble groups of celebrities that exist, right? (laughs) Well, I, 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 I don't know that I've been accused of that in a while, but I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I'm not, people don't like me because of the way I look, which is just as well, if you ask me. Well, it's your work. Do you have people come up to you when you're at signings and stuff and talk about the impact your books have had in their life? Yes, that happens. I have, I have made three or four people study Byzantine history and like spray years before me, I don't know whether to feel pleased or appalled, you know, these are people who are probably never going to have real jobs in their life. Well, they'll have real jobs, just potentially not in the field that they studied. Got to get on the Discovery Channel. They'll be fine. Yeah, I was going to say, they can do a, a YouTube. More chances now than there were then. So. <laughs> Runk Byzantine history will make it very secular. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Byzantine so, Plus, now available on your streaming platform. <laughs> um, what about people dressing up as your characters? Have you had that encounter? I've only had that happen once. Somebody at a convention I was at, I think it was in Tennessee, dressed up as a Confederate with a Kalashnikov. Yeah, I was going to say it had to be Guns of the South, if it was any. Yep, 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 yep. That cover is so iconic. Thank you, because that was my idea. Yay! You know, most, most of the time, they won't listen to you. This time... I got lucky. They didn't have an idea they liked better. Yeah, okay, we'll we'll do, you know, because that, that cover art is modeled after a photo of Robert E. Lee holding his hat. 
after the Confederacy surrendered, and he's standing on his porch in his house in Richmond, and he's looking like grim death, basically. And instead of the hat, I said, give him the Kalashnikov, let him hold that. That'll, that'll make people notice. And they listen to me, so thank you. You're very welcome. I would say that one, and uh, I'd have to go with After the Downfall, uh, the other one, uh, which I think has the... the yeah, the, the, only thing, the only thing that bothers me about that is that he ought to be wearing a helmet instead of an officer's cap. Officer other than that, it's, other yeah. than that, it's perfect. I love that he's riding the unicorn. I think that's just such a That's great perfect. Answer. Yeah. So do you, as you, as you gained more and more fame, do you feel like you had more impact on the covers and stuff? It's always fascinating to me because. Uh, they, 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 okay. They will listen to me sometimes, you know, I have the right to, you know, not the right, but they, but the privilege of making suggestions uh, there, there was one cover on um, the the third book of the Timeline One Ninety One series, the Second Great War book, where it ha where there is a soldier sitting in front of a milepost saying that it's like thirteen miles to Montreal. Okay, mm -hmm. and. In the original art, it said, Montreal, 20 kilometers. And I said, no, people, you can't do that. Canada wasn't metric in the, during the First World War. They went, it wasn't? <laughs> but they did change it. Well, that's good they listened to you. I think that's um, interesting. <laughs> the historian, hello. Did you guys look at this at all? I think that's funny yeah. because that's a catch historians have on things like that. And I kind of wonder how many of your readers would have caught that if they had done it. Uh, every, everyone, everyone who lived in Canada would have. I mean, I know people my age who went through metrication back in the 60s. Wow. That is a word I've never heard before, metrication. Going going to the metric system. No, totally. But I I swear that I hear new things that I haven't new heard before. That's word for the day. I'm gonna bring that up and see if the millennials at my work know what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, when you do you do a lot of conventions these days? Do you? I mean, not during these. Well. Uh, not during COVID, no. I, you know, I would do three or you know, I would do three or four a year. You know, I am anyone who knows me knows I I am not a very social person. God knows I am not a very social person. Um, but I yeah, I would I would do three or four a year because things like Worldcon and Lostcon are where I you know where I see friends that I can't see anywhere else. No, that's you know, so, totally. You know, so I, you know, so I, so I go, you know, so I go to see friends, and I see fans too. You know, this, you know, and it is nice to show your face every now and then, and remind people that yes, you do exist. <laughs> I am real. I'm not just on TV. Um, <laughs> uh, have any of your books been turned into TV or movies? 
No, a lot of several of them have been optioned, but none has been produced yet. Have you thought about writing, especially now in the age where there's like eight million streaming services? Have you thought about opening that path into writing a screen? Well, I would do a show. It is a it, you know I I I tried to write a screenplay once, and it is, and I and it wasn't very good. You know, it's it's a different technique. I have spent now close to sixty years learning how to do this thing. I have a couple of months of experience trying to write a screenplay. It's not the same thing. It's different. Oh yeah. No, I've I've I write screenplays as well, and I agree with you a thousand percent. It's different. I just wondered because I think. As an author, how would you feel about somebody else writing your story from your book? I would feel some people will buy my book because of this, and I'm going to get a check. <laughs> yes. You know, I you know, I am not allergic to money, okay? Good, good. That's probably a very good thing. Okay. <laughs> yep. I, I just wonder because it's interesting when, how do you feel about the books that have been changed into movies or shows? Um, usually, I think that the book does a better job of doing what it's doing than the film does. But for one thing, Probably most people don't agree with me. And for another thing, whoever sold the work to be adapted was crying all the way to the bank, like I said a minute ago, you know, so. Totally. Unless you're more, you know, I think everybody would be happy with an adaptation of some sort. (laughs) Oh, Yeah. You know, I, I think the bank part, you'd be happy. I just wonder sometimes as authors, I mean, I hope at one point my work is opted for that sort of thing. Um, and I go, how would I feel seeing it on the screen and going, this is not my story at all. Like I was watching Annihilation the other day and that movie is literally nothing like the book. The name is the same, but it's nothing like the book. And I'm like, many others. Yeah. yeah I'm like, Some people, some people are going to buy the book because of the film that comes with the territory that, you know, that, you know, along with the money you make for getting your thing produced as a movie or a series or whatever it is, some people are going to buy the book too. So, you know, you, you make out all right. I, I would not, I would not complain about any of this. If you could have one, what it was the, what would be the first book you'd want made into a TV series or a movie? <laughs> a very obscure one called Every Inch a King. Every Inch a King. Okay. Which is a book that I, that I never intended to write, but which I have a great fondness for. It was an accidental book that I enjoyed the hell out of. My my eldest daughter collects stamps, okay? Okay. And 
she, back in these days, I think she was still in high school. She subscribed to a stamp weekly periodical, and it was talking about, of all things, the postal history of Albania. Okay? Okay. And I happened to look at this article, and there was a mention of the, a king of Albania whose face never appeared on a stamp because he was king of Albania for five days and then had to run for his life. <laughs> okay. Okay. So here's the, the story as he told it. Uh, during the Balkan Wars, Albania got separated from the rest of Ottoman Turkey because the Greeks and the Serbs conquered the territory between what the Turks held and Albania. Okay, you with me? Yeah. That meant that meant that Albania had the choice of either being overrun by the Greeks and the Serbs or declaring its independence and getting a king of its own. All right? And they wanted a Muslim king because the Albanians were mostly Muslims. They asked the Turks to send them a prince. Okay? Okay. And a German acrobat named Otto Vitti got word of this. And he spoke fluent Turkish because he had served two hitches in the Turkish army. And he happened to be, and knew he happened to be, a ringer for the prince. Nice. Oh, wow. And he went to Albania, and he was crowned king of Albania, if you believe him. <laughs> and he was king of Albania for five days, and he had a hell of a good time in the harem that they recruited for him. And he declared war on Montenegro right next door. And then, as his story started to unravel, he escaped from Albania with most of the Albanian national treasury in his back pocket, even though that probably amounted to $8.18. <laughs> and he died out on this story for the rest of his life. He wrote his autobiography in German, because he was a German, Fünf Tage König von Albanien, Five Days King of Albania. This was in the 30s. There's a, there's, I, I, have, I have read chunks of this in German. And there is a picture of him, obviously hand-signed in, in, in the edition that I have. There's a photo of him, you know, fat and middle-aged and mustachioed in what he imagined to be Albanian royal costume with a fez and everything, right? Okay, he, he wait, it gets crazier. In his later years, in the 50s, 40 years after he was or wasn't king of Albania, he tried to get an invitation to the wedding of Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier of Monaco on the grounds that he was a former crowned head of Europe. Wow. I mean, this man, this man had big brass balls. Okay. 
He didn't get the invitation, by the way, but I mean, he dined out on this story for the rest of his life. So I wrote a fantasy novel about it. I think that's fantastic. I mean, you, you got to give cred where cred is due on that sort of thing. If you Absolutely. Be, you know, go you. Talk about 15 minutes of fame. We've got five days of fame. Wow. Yep. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, get any of yours made it would be case of the toxic spell dump that was probably that's like well okay every inch of king is in the same vein as that it is silly because yeah. it has to be silly to tell a story like that do you find because you because of your background in history and stuff one of the things i always find is very interesting about science fiction fans whom i love if you're listening to this podcast so don't send me hate mail is they tend to be very very particular and a lot of them tend to like research down to the nth degree so i'm wondering um i was one of those people i have been that person you you have to you have to understand i am on the asperger's spectrum i'm not very far along it but i'm on it okay and this holds for a fair number of the people who read the kind of things that I write because like attracts like, right? You know, so yeah, I, I am detail oriented and ready to quibble. Yes. I, I, I know about this. You find people try to quibble with you about stuff in your books. Oh, hell yes. Oh, we need a fun story about this. I feel like we need at least one fun story about it. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, and sometimes they're right, too. This happens. You know, all right. Uh, I wrote I wrote a bunch of stories that are collected as a different flesh. These are set in a world where Homo erectus found North America and the Native Americans didn't. So when the Europeans come over here, you know, they find Homo erectus and they have to figure out what the heck that means. And Homo erectus probably didn't talk. So a lot of the animals that have names derived from Native American languages like the skunk and the opossum and things like that are called different things. A skunk is called a striped polecat and like that. You, know, you, you, you see where I'm going with this? Yes. And somebody at a convention came up to me one day and he said, I saw what you were doing in a different flesh about the animal names and how they're not, you know, you, you change them. But then there is this animal called the woodchuck. You know, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck? That kind of woodchuck. And he said, did you know that the word woodchuck is derived from the Algonquian Indian word weejack? And I said, no, I didn't know that. You got me. Because <laughs> what else can you do? Yep. Great, great yeah. job. Go brag, brag about it on the internet. this was late 80s early 90s so there wasn't a whole lot of internet to write it on (laughs) but i'm sure there was a vicious newsletter that went out yeah yeah probably (laughs) as as it was 
printed up on uh, Paint Shop Pro back in the day. Yeah, I was going to say printed on a dot. There might have been some dot matrix there on a Commodore 64. Yep. Dot matrix or else typed in mimeograph. They, they, they still did that. Yep. Did you ever write on a typewriter? Yes, which is why these days I do first drafts in longhand. Oh, wow. Wow. Because when I was composing on a, you know, typewriters, if you're old enough to remember, you will know that typewriters are not user friendly. No, they're not at all. I, I learned to type on a typewriter and they're. Uh, okay. Okay. So, so you know what I'm talking about. So what I would do when I took a piece of paper out of the typewriter about the third time in a row and didn't write it the way I wanted to, what I would start to do was write it in longhand till I had clean copy and then transcribe it. Mm. And after a while, I sort of thought, this is trying to tell me something. And I started doing all my first drafts in longhand. Mm. And I've been doing that ever since, and I still do. I do not recommend this to anyone else. Everyone finds a different way to do it, but this is how I work. I think it's good that you said that, though, because it's interesting. One of the things I've been on a search for and have yet to find is where I can use a stylus to write. I write a lot faster. I'm, I'm 48 years old, so um, I write a lot faster because I used to actually write and do pen pals in the entire thing because they're, you know, I grew up on computers, Commodore 64, all that stuff, but that wasn't the method you wrote letters or talked to people or in school, they still taught longhand, you know? Um, so mm -hmm. I don't know if they do that anymore so much, but I, I taught both my kids cursive because they weren't teaching that in school. And I'm like, I don't care. You're going to learn even if you never use it, but just in case the entire world falls into disarray, you'll be able to write something. Um, the, you know, I write faster that way and I would love a program where I could write and it would translate it into actual, you know, text, so to speak. And I've yet to find that. It drives me completely crazy. I've tried the... Oh, I, 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 I have a program like that. It's called My Brain in My Hands. <laughs> There's an app for that, yeah. Okay, touche on that one. Yeah, but I, I think it's interesting because I do write faster longhand than I do typing. You know? Well, I, I, you know, with, with me, it's not so much faster. It's, it's that... I slow down enough so that a lot of the garbage never hits the page in the first time. And I need a lot less rewriting. What, what is your process like when you're writing? So you write longhand. Yeah. Then you, do you type it up, or and, type it up for you? Oh no, I do it because I do the editing when I do the typing. Interesting. How many times do you go through a book before you give it over to your, your actual editors? Twice, usually. Okay. Do you find that you have a pattern of anything? What do, what do you mean by a pattern? Like your editor, I mean, you've written so much, so this might be kind of a moot point, but I know as a writer, I've been writing for about 15 years. Mark, I think, is near 20. Near there. Near there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm being generous, Mark. It's fine. <laughs> And, you know, we, I think as writers, we all have these little quirks that we do that our editor is like, hey, and some of us, our quirks change from book to book. Like we evolve our quirks into whole new quirks that we do. 
Well, I, I mean, you know, I try, you know, this is, this is what, what, you know, what I try to do when I edit If you know, if I'm using a word too much or if I'm using too many adverbs, which is, you know, a flaw that I commonly have, you know, I try to cut that out when I'm, you know, as it goes from, uh, manuscript to typescript, you know, that's, that's what that's for. How do you feel about editors? Because you have a very different perspective. It's interesting talking to newer authors and especially baby authors about editors. They they think somehow they're like these demons that come out of some underworld that are like, let me t- let me devour your book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I usually am arrogant enough to think that I have a pretty decent idea of the story that I am trying to tell and how to tell it. Uh, if they convince me that I'm wrong, I make the change. You know, look, you, you know, the, the Heinlein rules are you must write, you must finish what you write, refrain from rewriting except to editorial order, put it on the market, and keep it on the market until sold. And, you know, if I get an editorial order, I, you know, I mostly do it. I think that it's very interesting you said that, because I think one of the things is, is that it, I think it's different for people who are traditionally published and have been writing a long time. It's a known part of the process, right? Versus well, the, I mean, the you know the 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 other the other thing is that you know I have you know I've sold a lot of stories to the magazines, and magazines have editors who buy stuff and edit stuff. Yep. And so, okay, yeah, you want me to do that? All right, I can probably do that. Do you do um, a synopsis of your story? Like when you're writing, do you do a full, how, how do you write? Are you a pantser plotter or whatever? I am, to, I, I am mostly a pantser. Wow. Uh, because, because telling myself the story is part of the fun. How do you get inspired? Uh, I'm curious because you have this history. How do you start and look and go, I'm going to alter that shit? <laughs> Um, the idea occurs to you and then you do it. Okay. Let's let, you know, let, let's, let's talk about what got me on this program. I have a new novel let out from Prince of Cats literary publications called, or even evil flu. And what this is, it's the story of Amelia Earhart surviving her round the world flight and a few years later, ending up flying for the RAF in the Battle of Britain. And I can tell you exactly how I got that idea. Okay. Because my wife's father, may he rest in peace, was a Lockheed engineer. And a couple of years ago, my wife saw that the museum in the San Fernando Valley, which is called Valley Relics, was having a talk by a retired Lockheed engineer, and she wanted to go because she wanted to hear what he had to say, and she wanted to know if he'd known her father back in the day. And and I went along because I you know I, I I was interested in this kind of stuff. 
and he was talking, and he was talking about the history of Lockheed, and he was talking about a couple of planes that Amelia Earhart had flown were Lockheed planes, and I'm listening to this guy, and I thought, what if Amelia Earhart lived? What if she ended up in the RAF? Because I had recently read a book about the Eagle Squadron, the squadron of Americans who flew in the RAF before the United States was really in World War II. And I pulled out a business card from my wallet, and I whispered to my wife to give me a pen, and I scrawled the idea down on the back of a business. And I bought some books, and I wrote the story. You know, I mean, you 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 don't ask for ideas; they you know they just you know they just happen sometimes. No, totally. I I always think it's fascinating for me to see where authors got inspiration on different stories because I love during COVID, but people watching, watching people. So mm-hmm. I read for like that doesn't end well stories and people watching is fascinating to me because I take this and I go, and what if this happened? Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. From the most mundane things and people go, how did you go there? And I'm like, it was easy. I was at a mall and I watched this happen. And then I went, Hmm. What if? <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, Mark mentioned, and people will mention, because it's probably my best-known book, *The Guns of the South*. This was not a book I ever intended to write. I was, and am, you know, thirty years later, still friends with Judith Tarr, who was a real fine fantasy writer. Mm-hmm. And back in the 80s, before either one of us was online, we would write back and forth. She was living in Connecticut in those days. And Judy was doing one of the things that writers do when uh, they talk to other writers. She was pissing and moaning about the cover art for a book she had coming out. She said, this stuff is as anachronistic as Robert E. Lee with an Uzi, for Christ's sake. And I thought, that's a good line, Judy. And I wrote her back. And I printed out my letter, because I had written it on a computer. And I added a hand-scroll PS at the bottom. Who'd want to give Robert E. Lee an Uzi? Time traveling South Africans, maybe. If I write it, I'll give you an acknowledgement. <laughs> and I looked at that and I thought, I can do shit with that. That's amazing. And, and I Xeroxed it to make sure I wouldn't lose it, you know. By the way, for those listening that don't understand, that's a copy machine. Think of it as a scanner. I'm there looking at my first print to see if there's an acknowledgement, but I don't see an acknowledgement. So. Oh, oh, it's there. It's there. there the acknowledgements are at the ba- at the back at of the book. Back of the book. There it is. I was just gonna say, wait a minute, it's at the back. Uh. <laughs> it's there. There it is. That is thoroughly amazing. Okay. Well, we are. And that's the book, you know, and that's the book that let me quit my day job. So that's, you know, I owe Judy big time. That is, that is amazing. 
Okay. So we're at the end of our hour for our first episode. So, um, uh, Harry, where is the best place for fans to find you? Please don't list your home address. I have to do that warning every time. <laughs> well, I, I, I have a Twitter presence for my sins and for your sins, too. I am, on I am on Twitter at HNTurtleDove. Okay, and if um, um, obviously it's very easy to look up Harry Turtle Dove and you'll find the books and stuff. So I'm not even going to pretend like it's not very easy to find all of the ways to find you. What is the next book you have coming out? Say the title again. Uh, the, the book that just came out is Or Even Eagle Flew. And at the end of April from Subterranean Press, I have a big story collection coming out called, God help us, The Best of Harry Turtledove. The Best? Wow, that's, that's going to be a high standard, my friend. High standard. <laughs> <laughs> you I love have been... your Conan novella. I love your Conan. <laughs> Did you write in a Conan novel at the very end there, Mark? Did I'm you... next. We're going to talk about that in the, in the, the next, in the rapid fire. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so I've been Eric Lance. I've been Mark Monty. Harry, Florida, and we will see you next time. Okay.